It's 2022. Do you know where your consumer is? The Channel Mastery Podcast is created for executives who are obsessed with knowing everything about their target consumers, because that's what unlocks the future success and impact of our brands and businesses today. Every week on this podcast, we dig deep to bring you what's working and what's not when it comes to winning the attention of and building loyalty with your target consumer. We've got a lot to share, so let's get to it. And thanks so much to Verde Brand Communications for being the presenting sponsor of the Channel Mastery Podcast. Let's do this. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Channel Mastery Podcast. I'm delighted to introduce Brendan Cork to you, the CEO of USA Cycling, and also, as we're about to find out, quite a storied history in the outdoor recreation and cycling markets. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah, glad to be here, Kristen. I appreciate it. And we're Happy connecting. New Year. Oh, thank you. I was just going to say we're connecting in the middle of January 2022. Um, you stepped into your role, uh, latest executive role at USA Cycling, I believe in mid-December of 2021. Um, but before we get into that, and we have a lot to go through in that regard in terms of your vision and what you're taking on there, let's talk a little bit about uh, the high points of your career trajectory leading into this, because I think it'll give our audience a really nice context in terms of the type of uh, vision you're going to bring to the organization. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I started racing bikes when I was a teenager back in the 1980s, really fell in love with the sport. Uh, And it led to me getting involved at retail. Uh, One thing led to another. And in the late 90s, uh, founded a company called Competitive Cyclist in my hometown of Little Rock, Arkansas. In the span of about 12 years, a core group of us transformed this little bike shop in Little Rock into the largest uh, cycling e-commerce business in North America, one of the largest ones in, in the world. is a, a really crazy journey at an early point in the internet. Um, subsequently sold the company to backcountry.com in 2011, joined the executive team at Backcountry in Park City, learned a lot in a few years there, um, and then chose to, to exit. And um, a little while later, joined Rafa, the high-end. At that point, it was a road cycling apparel brand. It's since expanded into lots of other things. I joined as their uh, president of North America to help uh, drive uh, their growth trajectory in the United States. And um, uh, successfully, had a three-year run there. We sold the company uh, to RZC Investments, which uh, the principals there, Tom and Stuart Walton, who have done so much great work in Northwest Arkansas to build cycling as a kind of a quality of life initiative and an economic development driver. Uh, I spent a lot of time when I was at Rafa, since it's based in London, spent a lot of time going back and forth between the U.S. and London. And um, once we sold the company, I was like, I'm, I'm done. I don't want to fly over there ever, ever again. And um, when I made the decision to, to leave the company, uh, Tom and Stuart will asked if I'd be interested in joining um, them in, in driving cycling initiatives in Northwest Arkansas. So I spent about the last four years doing that. Uh, for those of you who have not been to, to Bentonville or Fayetteville and ridden the amazing trails there, I definitely would invite you to come out. It's a, a phenomenal experience. And uh, yeah, I recently left um, that, that world and uh, just started the role as CEO of USA Cycling. Really excited to be there. Well, and I think that we can, you know, say we're all excited to have you there. 
Um, and I'm I'm really excited to get into the conversation around how you know your career your trajectory will feed into the future of that organization. But let's start at the kind of the the table stakes of the decision. Like why now? Why did you step into that role now? Obviously, we we're living through this pandemic. It's changed everything with events, racing, consumer expectations community. Um, and it continues to accelerate and challenge changes with legacy organizations and institutions. And I'm just super curious, um, knowing that COVID has really been the great accelerator, pushing trends to warp speed. You're stepping into this at a very dynamic time. And it's a legacy organization that maybe some would say hasn't been the most nimble, but I know it's really yeah. tried. Um, so let's talk about your, your type of leadership Brandon, I think is is going to be new for this organization. I know you stepped in from a board role, but share your vision, like why USA Cycling and why now? Why USA Cycling for me is a, a really personal thing. I love bike racing. Um, to me, it's a um, it has given me a great sense of who I am as an individual going back to the first time I raced the bike in 1986. Uh, I'm still a huge fan of the support of, of the sport, the men's sport, the women's sport you know, Tour de France, the Olympics, you know, even, you know, watching BMX racing to me, it is just, it's really thrilling. It really cuts through to my heart. Um, and I have seen time and time again, how, uh, folks who get involved in racing, whether they're Olympians or whether they're lousy amateurs, like I was, is the, the, the act of training, the act of trying to better yourself on the bike, uh, it's transformative. And for me, it, it informed who I was as a student, who I've been as a professional, and uh, it means the world to me. I'm at a point now where I'm super motivated to, to, to package that experience and provide it to as many people in the U.S. as possible, because I think it's an inspiring and beautiful thing. I love the way that you described that in terms of coming into it, uh, in terms of the way that you self-identified with amateur racing and feel that you belong to the sport of bicycle racing. I definitely share a lot of the enthusiasm and passion, and it definitely has Defined who I am, the community I want to be part of, et cetera. And the Olympics, right? That's a big part of this as well. Can you talk a little bit about maybe um, how that might have tied into your decision to take this? Because that's a super important, I think, facet to this decision and the vision that you might have ahead is how the United States shows up in global cycling. Yeah, the, the, interesting, the interesting thing about the Olympic movement, and it's something that uh, a lot of folks don't know is that they assume, oh, you know, the, the, the government funds the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee and all the national governing bodies like U.S. Ski or, or USA Cycling, you know, we're the recipients of, um, you know, loads of government funding to fund Olympic operations. The fact is, is that it's not. This is a, uh, you know, we, were, we are highly reliant on the generosity of donors to fund the operations of Team USA so it's year in, year out. It's like skiing. You, know, you have an annual World Cups, annual World Championships. But then you know, the all-important, uh, uh, you know, every four years, the Olympics. And it's, it's short of a couple of bike races that I'm a huge fan of, you know, the Tour de France, the Tour of Flanders, Paris-Roubaix. I find the Olympics across all disciplines, whether it's BMX or track or road or mountain, I find them to be um, some of the most riveting racing that there is. When you meet these athletes, I mean, yes, there are some of the men's road racers or faces that are familiar from the Tour de France, but by and large, American cyclists who are racing in the Olympics, 
These are men and women who have part-time jobs or full-time jobs. They've got college degrees, graduate degrees. They're just trying to hold it together, their elite athletic career and a professional career. And it is uh, uh, it, it is nothing short of heroic watching them try to live both of these lives. I want to come in and support these athletes as they try to, to, to reach for the medal podium in the Olympics. I also want to be supportive of them as whole humans as they're trying to also pursue their you know, professional careers as well. They're so worthy of that support. I want to find a way to, to tell those stories and unleash the generosity of the cycling community through USA Cycling to support Team USA. I love that. And I think that's something we can all rally around. So let's get to kind of the brass tacks here. What do you see as the number one biggest opportunity in the near term for your leadership at USA Cycling? The, the biggest thing we have to get get through is the really tough economics of running a national governing body. Historically, it's been um, reliant on selling racing memberships. Uh, racing, uh, American bike racing peaked 2012-2013. It was kind of the final uh, tailwind that came from the Lance Armstrong era. Ever since then, racing has been kind of flat. It, it hasn't really declined, but it hasn't really, it has, definitely has not grown. Um, and that trend really went in the wrong direction with COVID. Bike racing basically stopped. When you don't have bike racing, you don't have amateur racers who have to buy racing licenses. Uh, you don't have racer days that, for, that race promoters are putting on. And that's basically the economic engine of USA Cycling. Um, racing has bounced back since 2020. Membership has bounced back. Racer days have bounced back. But still, the economics of the organization are really hard. There, there are a lot of exciting forms of cycling that are out there now, especially with the, the big boom behind gravel racing that is separate from USA Cycling. You don't have to have a USA Cycling license. Uh, typically, those events don't sanction for USA Cycling. You know, no money flows to us. We don't provide them any support. And it's great on the one hand that so many new cyclists have been created with COVID. The tough thing for us, though, is they're not racing bikes in the traditional way. So understanding how we can take all of this excitement and energy that's coming from new events, from the creation of new cyclists because of COVID, it's, it's for us, how do we build pathways into bike racing? Uh, so those people uh, try the sport, hopefully fall in love with the sport and continue to do it for years. And uh, for us, that, that kind of kicks back our economic engine so we can have economic sustainability. But without a doubt, that's the biggest challenge for us. Wow. That's actually, you know, I find that to be such an interesting business challenge around this organization. And I think it's awesome that you explained that this is not a government-funded entity, if you will. <clears throat> and so re being reliant upon the cycling community and, you know, maybe business donations versus event sponsorships. Like what are some of the things that you're hoping to maybe ramp up as you're taking the helm here in terms of the, I think the North American cycling business community contributing to this? Well, a corporate sponsorship, I mean, we've definitely underperformed and um, connecting with cycling industry sponsors, non-endemic sponsors to say, look, we've got these incredible men and women wearing the stars and stripes racing all across the world in these beautiful places, racing the Olympic Games. There's a lot of storytelling and a lot of good that we can do from a sports marketing perspective that we have you know, we've not done a terribly good job on. We've got a very, um, a very generous foundation 
and we need to continue to grow that foundation. That's where the majority of the, the financial support of our elite athletic operations comes from, comes from donors. And we need to continue to diversify that donor pool over time to, to support our high-performance um, uh, operations. We need to grow membership. Um, we need to do a better job supporting all of the grassroots organizations that are responsible for putting on bike racing on a day-in, day-out basis. It's the racing clubs. It's the event organizers that are putting on the Wednesday night mountain bike series or the Wednesday night criteriums. It's the local associations that really help administer uh, a, a lot of the work that 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 um, makes bike racing come to life in in various regions. We have to support all those organizations uh, at, a, at a much higher level. At the same time, we have to we have to identify what are key segments of these new cyclists that are out there who are commuting by bike. They're recreational cyclists. How do we introduce them to the joy of bike racing? How do we make it easy? How do we show them that we are an inviting, inclusive community? We have fun um, bringing down those barriers to participation because it is a pretty intimidating sport. We've got to do a better job of bringing those barriers down. And if we can kind of hit across all of those marks, I think our um, our membership uh, will really get back into growth mode and we're going to have a, a much larger and healthier racing community. You've done an exceptional job, I think, building a more diverse board. And yeah. I believe with that will come new networks because we, you know, coming through the ranks in our careers as we have in the outdoor recreation spaces or cycling, we really have a tendency to kind of work within the system of our network. And I think you've done yeah. a great job introducing a more diverse board. <clears throat> and it sounds like you're taking a less extractive approach. And I think that's what really something that has been um, you know, the USA Cycling has experienced criticism around like, okay, from the community's view if they want to get into gravel, it has been maybe like the assumption immediately goes to extraction or ownership of gravel instead of support of local and regional races. So what's your take on that in terms of like turning the the vision from maybe extraction, because you still do have business goals to support? Yeah, the, the, for, for us, it's um, uh, a new cyclist is a new cyclist as far as I'm concerned. We are in the business of, of supporting the growth of, of the sport. If people are coming into the sport uh, through gravel, um, we want to support Lifetime and what it is they're trying to do. We want to support the Belgian Waffle Ride with what it is they're trying to do or all the other grassroots organizations because as they create enthusiasm for these mass start events that people are training for, taking very seriously, eventually some percentage of those people, they're going to see the Tour de France on TV and they're going to say, well, that's a, that's a different form of cycling. It's similar to what I'm familiar with. And I want to give that a stab. Of course, we, if we can be supportive of, of you know, Lifetime and others in building up that base of participation, we all win. It, there is, there's this kind of narrative in the cycling media. Oh, there's, it's a zero-sum game. Is it you know, Lifetime events over here and these people over here and USA Cycling over here? It's, that's, none of us own the customer. None of us own cycling. I think if we all work together to build up the sport, we're all going to be successful. And the, the funny thing, it's, it is this, this notion of this rivalry. I do think it's just a, it's a media concoction. We have a great relationship with Lifetime. We've got a great relationship with the folks at BWR. We've got a great relationship with the folks that, you know, over in the BMX world. Um, there is a, a lot of collective understanding that getting more kids into cycling, 
um, you know, g- growing active transportation, just getting more people on bikes. That's the that's the end goal, and we will all will all win if we achieve that. The Channel Mastery Podcast is sponsored by the Sea Otter Classic Summit, presented by Lifetime Incorporated. It's a brand new executive gathering taking place right before the 2022 Sea Otter Classic Cycling Festival, the world's largest consumer cycling event. Sea Otter marks the kickoff of the camping and bike season and brings together tens of thousands of outdoor and cycling enthusiasts. I mean, what better lab environment do we need to study our consumer circa 2022? And that's why we're hosting our Executive Leadership Summit just before the Sea Otter Classic on the historic and beautiful Cannery Row in Monterey, California. And you know, a new Leadership Summit is much needed today for the outdoor recreation industries. We need to grow our networks. We need to get to know the trends that will greatly impact how we operate and serve our consumers going through and beyond the pandemic. And we need to study this consumer that we all share together. Change can be exhausting and growth like we've seen it in outdoor recreation can be expensive in more ways than one. If you're wondering how to harness this opportunity and scale your business through the headwinds of consumer evolution, join us in Monterey, April 5th through 7th at the Sea Otter Classic Summit. Please visit seaotterclassicsummit.com for more information and to register. Space is limited. I love that. And it actually does feel like a new start. And obviously we've seen what Lifetime is a Verde client. We've helped them launch the Grand Prix. We've seen what BWR just came out with in terms of this enormous prize purse. And it's funny because you and I have watched Gravel and it participated in it from its infancy. And we've seen like, oh, we want this to be kind of party at the back. Um, And now we're seeing it develop the way that we've seen potentially mountain bike in the early 90s, right? Yeah. What is your um, take now that we're in this new era and we want to really bring people out of that long ago history mindset <clears throat> where maybe like they can blame whatever they want for quote, changing mountain biking, but gravel is actually making mountain biking, I think have a resuscitation yeah. and off-road cycling, I think is super important. And it sounds like you have a very collaborative approach in terms of supporting all these disciplines. So I just would love to have you speak to anything that you want to that's top of mind in terms of kind of the competitive side of gravel, as we've seen the landscape really change in January of 2022. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that, um, I think you're absolutely right. If you look back to the early days of mountain biking, um, it was, you know, the magic of those early days is it was small, community-based, self-governed, self-regulated. Um, and it was, um, uh, you know, it, it, was, uh, it, it was kind of a party, even though you were racing. What happens, though, is the sport grows, it gets international, um, the, the industry gets involved, money starts to get involved, um, self-governance, um, and, you know, some of self-determination can get to be pretty messy. People want to start to see rules, you know, should men be pacing women in gravel races? Should there be doping control? Should there be better, you know, better marshalling at intersections and just, you know, basic safety are, are measures like this for, 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 you know, some organizers have those nailed. A lot of organizers don't have those nailed, especially when you bring money into the, the top end of the sport. Um, some of the self-determination and self-regulation could lead to unexpected and messy outcomes. And I think you've seen over the last year, several different forms of, of controversy come out of that. So you know what, what we already know what the UCI is going to do. They are going to get more involved at the at the um, let's call it the very most elite side of the sport. 
You're starting to see professionalized gravel racing come to life in Europe. It's exactly what happened with mountain bike in the 1990s. And I expect the same thing will happen with gravel. That, that's that's fine because there's still amazing sort of fun-led, community-led mountain biking that has nothing to do with the UCI involvement in the sport. And uh, I mean, you look at the what's going on with enduro racing and things like this, where it's yeah, it's fast at the front but fun in the back. Um, you know that 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 spirit is still very strong in mountain biking now, even though there's also the Olympic movement, a very competitive World Cup. And what I expect is the same thing to happen in gravel as well. <clears throat> That's awesome. And just looking also at, um, I know that you have a focus on parity with with uh, the board that you've put together, the programs you're launching. I mean, all of that seems to be, you know, a lot of great things on the horizon. And you mentioned the UCI, you were just there in December. Um, can you share a little bit about what that trip was about in your vision? Not that I want to be nosy here, Brendan, but yeah. you you went right out of the gate. You took the position, you went straight over to Geneva. And I was just curious to know like how that maybe fed your vision for 2022. Yeah, a couple couple different things. Um, one, I, I um, you know, it's it's uh, as we speak today, it's January 11th on January 29th and 30th is going to be the UCI Cyclocross World Championships here in the U.S. It's only the second time it's ever been held in the U.S. We started on that project back in 2018, uh, getting a UCI World Championship. It's not dissimilar to cities that try to attract an Olympic Games. You know, it's it's a lot of time, energy, resources that go into hosting an event many years into the future. Uh, and so it was a big, big project. It was a big learning project for us to get involved with recruiting uh, this 2022 Cyclocross World Championships. So the, the main purpose of the trip over there was to uh, you know do a, a review of everything we were uh, establishing to make this a really successful race here in a couple of weeks from now. Um, that's That was measure number one. Measure number two was to talk about gravel. And uh, the UCI appreciates the fact that gravel was born in the States. Uh, it will probably be the dominant market for gravel cycling for some time to come. And they wanted to get some American perspective on uh, the direction of the sport. And so I was happy to share that with them. Uh, across all disciplines, though, road, mountain, track, BMX, et cetera, we are excited to um, work to host more UCI World Cup and hopefully UCI World Championship events. And you know, spending time with those international federations is a really great way uh, to, to build a bridge to those kinds of events happening. So it's those kinds of events are so inspiring to bring new cyclists into the sport. It's it's super important that we host them here. You know, right? We've lost the tour of California. We've lost the tour of Utah. We have very little in the way of World Cup mountain bike races here. So it is important that we bring top class international racing back to the states if we want to grow the sport. So do we need like a eighteen month runway to bring a new one to the states, or is what you're setting up with the UCI around what's happening in um, you know with the cyclocross, is that going to serve as a template for a new way forward that maybe we can activate more quickly? Uh, cyclocross, you can, you can, you know, different disciplines have, um, so different disciplines, they're, the, the world championships are already reserved multi, you know, for road. It's through like 2028 or 2029. You have to go way into the future. Cyclocross, it wasn't quite as far out into the future. But the truth is, if you want, we need a, a sustained strategy to establishing international caliber racing in the states. It would be you know, what we have right now is three World Cup 
UCI cyclocross races in the U.S. We as a community should work hard to keeping those here. We have a couple of UCI World Cup mountain bike races every year. You know, Snowshoe West Virginia has one. Mont St. Anne up in, in Canada has one. We need to we need to get another one in the U.S. Whether it's in Bentonville, whether it's in California, we need to make that a fixture on the calendar. And I think once we get that that rhythm or that heartbeat of having international class racing in the U.S., I think what you're going to see is is increased increased fandom, increased participation, and it's going to be great for the sport and great for the industry. I can't wait for that because it does feel like we have a big gap right now, and and <clears throat> hopefully we can get more going on. The more that we can see or our you know, young people in this country can see themselves in people participating in these events, especially on a global stage like that, the more you're going to see the aspiration grow, the dreams. Sure. Yeah, so I'm super excited about that. Um, and hopefully that's something that the business um, community of cycling and even outdoor recreation can step up and support because I think everybody really misses that. <clears throat> yeah, so. I mean, you would know that too, being right there in Durango, right? The world... The, you see the, the mountain bike world championship was held there back like in what, 1989 or 1990. I mean, yeah. back in the stone ages of mountain biking. And you look at just how the, the sport of mountain biking just absolutely infuses every last little nook and cranny of Durango and hosting that mountain bike championships. It was just one weekend in time, but everybody remembers that. And, uh, you know, I had, uh, 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 I spent some time with, there's a young man named Riley Amos who lives in Durango Probably, you know, one of the two or three most promising young male mountain bikers in the United States. He won an under-23 World Cup mountain bike race in, um, I think it was in Germany, last summer. And uh, he is, without a doubt, a star for the future. But even we were talking about, I think I think that the Durango World Championships happened before he was born, but it's still like in the front of his consciousness. So, uh, you know, what that does to transform a sense of community around bikes, those kinds of events, it's just incredible. And I think the more that are, um, you know, that the broader cycling, you know, the newcomers that are coming into the sport can see that history and see that we actually have had an imprint on that history and how wonderful it would be to bring American cycling more um, into the global sphere, I think, would be very, very important to do. And I think doing that and and as, as much as our country loves sports and our sporting heroes, I also think that it could affect how we will have influence on, you know, the decisions around bike infrastructure and bike safety. Like, I feel like it, it's not too far of a stretch to know that promoting that and making that more visible and something that America can have like a, you know, permission to have an ownership stake in the more that's going to, I think, really graduate down into everything else that we're working on to keep this new cyclist who has emerged from COVID. Uh, I agree. There's a phrase we sometimes use to talk about the normalization of cycling. It's normal to ride your bike to the store. It's normal to, uh, ride your bike to school. It's normal to ask your city council to put in a bike path or a, you know some kind of protected active transportation infrastructure. And it's normal to race a bike. We can kind of normalize all forms of cycling for sure. It just, it, it, it elevates the whole sport. What we as a cycling industry need to be focused on is you know, where do the participants of the future come from? What are the barriers to entry? I mean, yes, through sport, you can inspire some folks to, to start but uh, you know, ultimately, what what um, I, I think that's one one ingredient for success. Another ingredient for success is going to be a continued progress in the development of active transportation networks and the creation of, of perceptions of safety. If you're riding your bikes, you know, in or near traffic, um, that's been one of the great breakthroughs that we've had in the U.S. in the last decade 
has been, I think, a lot of courage and a lot of funding on a municipal level to uh, invest in active transportation networks, bike ped master, you know, making bike ped master plans actually come to life, actually activating those plans. And then most recently with the, the, you know, the big infrastructure package that just passed Congress, is so much of that's being devoted to large scale transportation networks. But when you when you get away from interstates and you start getting down to county and city level infrastructure, road infrastructure that'll be built, it's it's going to be uh, I think a real breakthrough for uh, for cycling because all of all of these bike ped master plans they're going to have the opportunity to be funded, and I think the the opportunity to use bikes for utility purposes all across the U.S. We're at this uh, in- incredible inflection point where I think we have the opportunity to become a nation of cyclists, and that would just be uh, I- incredible for our health, for our environment, for the sport. And I can just say, like, after listening to you talk about this and all of the things that are in flight and in play, I can't wait to see what you do with your team and your board at USA Cycling going forward, because you're right. We really are at that pivot point. And I think if we all push, we're going to make huge progress happen. I want to, I want to take like the COVID ex- great accelerator and apply it to like the vision that you've just laid out. <clears throat> and I know that you have such a collaborative mindset with people for bikes, with lifetime, with all of the players who are in this to try and make the United States a country of cyclists. I mean, I hope that happens within the next five years, let alone in our lifetime, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. And I think we're going to go there. The final, the final, you know, the final thing to sprinkle on top of that has been the the, the unbelievably rapid uh, uh, um, adoption of e-bikes by American consumers in the bike market. That's, I think, the final the final piece of the puzzle that um, I do think in the next five years it is going to be transformative. Our industry is going to benefit, and our communities are going to benefit. So. Um, if you haven't spent much time on an e-bike, you should do it because you'll, you'll put a huge smile on your face. You'll get a kick out of it. But also from a practical standpoint, it's just a game changer in terms of being able to get out and get around on a bike. It truly is. And I have one and you're right. Every time I'm on that, I'm smiling. It is so much fun. <laughs> for sure. Well, it is. Is there anything I forgot to ask you about your vision that you'd like to put out there for the community? I think the final thing, the final challenge we have as an organization that I am really excited about is that as you look at the history of the elite, the elite side of the sport of cycling, again, Tour de France, Olympic Games, and all of that, uh, it, it has been an incredibly white sport. And uh, there have been a couple of exceptions. You know, Nelson Vales is this classic example, the Los Angeles Olympics in 1984. He won a silver medal. Um, we've got people like Justin Williams who are really doing some breakthrough things in the, in the U.S. racing scene. Um, but I, I want to challenge our organization to build impactful programs to get diversity into our developmental pipeline for the Olympic movement. I think we have some really unique opportunities to do that. This is where the diversity that we have on our board is really helpful. And I think we can help change the the literal complexion of what elite cycling looks like um, uh, in the Olympic movement. You know, the 2028, we've got the Los Angeles Summer Games. It's going to be the most important Olympics that's ever happened for the American non-governing uh, or national governing bodies. And I would love nothing more than to find a, a young man or young woman who's Hispanic or African-American in L.A. County to recruit them into our developmental pipeline and to have them stand on the, the medal podium at L.A. 2028. If we can make that happen, I, I can't think of, of anything that we would be more proud of as an organization 
And uh, we, we, we are going to work our, our tails off to try to make programming like that come to life. That's amazing. I literally almost got teary when you said that. That is awesome. So thank you so much. This was a fantastic conversation. So positive. I mean, I, there's so many ways that we could have framed this that might've been more, you know, facing challenges, et cetera, but you've really painted this fantastic runway of positivity and growth. And I want to say thanks for that. And thanks so much for your time, Brendan. Yeah. It was great to have you on here. Good to see you again. Thanks for having me. All right. If you liked this episode of the Channel Mastery Podcast, please help more business leaders find this resource by going to iTunes and leaving us a positive review and also sharing it with a friend or colleague. Thank you so much for listening and thank you to Verde Brand Communications for being our presenting sponsor. Check us out at verdepr.com. Verde PR.